well, it's um, a privilege to um, welcome Colin to the stage in a different capacity. Uh, Colin is known to many of you, of course, as one of our pastors here. Uh, but under the series title called Who Me, uh, we thought it was appropriate to interview Colin about his move in the new year through to Golden Sands of Papamoa. Golden Sands is the suburb that's at the furthest most end of Papamoa. So Colin, um, I know your story well enough to know that um, when you went through college, let's come through the middle here, uh, when you came through college, um, sorry, where'd you, what was it's, how I, about? it's how I move now, so it's just, just go with it. Okay. Is that your sand walk? Anyone who comes along has to do the same. You're on your own, bro. I know, I just killed it. It's dead. It's dead. It's all over. It's dead. It was a good run, wasn't it? That was yeah, fun. Yeah, it was a nice dream. Yeah. Anyway, let's back up the truck a bit here. Um, when you came through Baptist College, um, you had a real desire to uh, plant a church. So explain that, you know, under the sort of who me, why me? Why, 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 why church plant? Yeah, um, I guess for me it wasn't so much like, oh, I want to be like a founding church pastor somewhere, as much as it was motivated by the story that led me there. Um, I mean, most of you probably are aware of this, but before I came here to New Zealand, I worked with Youth with a Mission uh, back in the UK, and my role there was, I was, the, it's kind of a weird role for a missions organization, but I was the lead singer of a rock band. Hey! Um, and what we did is we just played music in all these bars, pubs, clubs, just the regular venues. Just did so you have a hang. dance routine with it? That, it was, that was part of the move. Um, we never made it far as a band. I'm not sure why. <laughs> Funny that. Uh, yeah. No, I couldn't pick why. No, uh, no. Um, but we played in all these venues because we wanted to hang out with the people who went there, hang out with non-Christians, the musos, the, the drinkers, the pub goers, just anyone and everyone who went to those places. And while doing that, I was just so... Um, so moved by the relationships I built with people there and so uh, profoundly transformed by their lives and their stories. And I realized as I was talking with them, like their journey to Jesus wasn't going to be a one-year thing or a two-year thing, but it might be like a 10, 20, 30-year thing for some of them. Mm. And so for me, I realized like the, the organization best set up to do that isn't a short-term YWAM team. It's a church. Mm. And so for me, I was just came to New Zealand and came to college so excited about a church that takes these two worlds that I love so deeply. I, I desperately love the church. I've grown up in church my whole life, and it, there's so much potential for what happens here, and then connect it with the world out there, the musicians who'd never walked through the doors, and have a community where those two worlds can come together in all of their awkwardness, and really there we could see Jesus move. And so for me, church planning is a wonderful opportunity because we have to interface with other people, otherwise we'll die. So it's, you know, good self-motivation to be reaching out. Fantastic. So in your journey, as you've been making your way towards uh, this church plant, um, what's been your, your strategy at this stage? You know, like you're, you're sort of, you're here and there. How have you been um, building those relationships? Um, yeah, so it's been a, a combination of things, really. Uh, it's been great to be able to be here and build relationships and understand <clears throat> so much of the ethos that happens here at BBC. God is doing some amazing things here, and so it's a real privilege for me to be able to be, able to, able to be a part of it. Um, but also really excited about what's happening out there in Golden Sands. Like, it's such, I mean, some of you guys live out there, eh? And it's such a cool space. That whole Papamoa East region is just exploding with growth. Mm -hmm. And so for me, one of the simple things that I've done um, are every Wednesday, I go out to Henry and Ted's Cafe. Shout out. Great place. And I just hang out there, and I'll either read or I'll chat with the owners or I'll meet people there. But for me, it's about locally being a presence for the long term, be able to just see the faces that's there and 
One of the weird things that I often do is I end up going out there with a dog collar, like the old school, you know the old school ones? Yeah, I mean, you guys are shocked. It's not that weird. Um, <laughs> well, it is a little bit weird. The, the reason is because um, about 50 years ago, a lot of people don't know this, 50 years ago, the Baptists mm. almost entirely would all wear a dog collar mm. for all mm. of their work. And then this guy's generation came along, and then they pretty much abandoned it wholesale. <laughs> like, just kicked it right out. And, um, which is great. You guys need to do that. No judgment. Um, so I'm not feeling judged is, at all. This isn't going well, is it? I'm no. so sorry. Um, no I didn't expect you can invite. So you replaced the dog collar with? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Technically, it's about combining. It's combining oh, okay. this. Yeah. Um, if you do that, mate, I'd put you on a leash if it's combining. <laughs> Anyway, I would, I would wear this dog collar because for me what it's about is about being a faithful presence in the community. And what I found was, um, because I don't look like the standard person who'd wear a dog collar, I'd wear it with like jean jackets and Converse All-Stars and ripped jeans. So I just don't look like the standard person who'd wear a dog collar, but I'd still be there. And what it meant is I was beginning to flip people's expectations of what a church should be. Mm. And by simply having a shirt on, people would come and talk to me about faith, they would talk to me about their journeys. They would ask me for prayer. And all I had to do was have a shirt that said, hey, I'm okay talking about this. And so the way I thought about it is, look, if all I got to do is put on a shirt to be able to pray and talk to people about Jesus, mm. that's an easy decision. That's good. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. I like it. Okay. Um, now, how can we help you? Now, I know the answer to this question, and some of you are going to be surprised by the answer. How can we help you create your presence? Yes. In, in Papamore, so in Golden Sands area. one thing that would be super helpful is if everybody right now can take out their phones and open up Facebook. This might be the first and last time you ever hear this in church. <laughs> um, but legitimately, <laughs> young people are so excited. I'm going to do that. Um, pull, pull out your phones, unlock them, open the Facebook app. And then on the Facebook app, you should be at the very top of the screen. There should be like a search bar. And in the search bar, could everybody just type in Golden Sands Baptist Church? It's spelt exactly like it sounds, um, Golden Sands Baptist Church. Type it that there and push enter, and what you should see is a logo with like a black triangle in a circle, and that'll be us. If everybody can go to that page and push like, it actually helps us remarkably. So the way advertising and marketing works nowadays is Facebook is the main way that we'll be able to engage with the community. You know, like before we probably would have done letter drops in everybody's postal boxes, but now the most efficient and cost-effective way we can get at them isn't in their mailbox, it's in their phone. Mm. And the best way for us to do that is through Facebook. So if everybody goes and likes our Facebook page, it like exponentially widens our reach to be able to reach the local community, to be able to reach Golden Sands, to be able to reach the wider Tauranga, people who haven't been a part of a church for a long time, people who are seeking or asking questions about God. Your like enables us to expand that rapidly. And we want to be able to get a really big reach because on the 30th of September, we're going to be holding an interest af evening afternoon at Henry and Ted's Cafe. So it's a Saturday from 4 till 5.30, where anyone who wants to know more, even if you're here and you haven't been able to come along to anything, come along to this on S September the 30th, and you can hear the journey of where we're at, what's going to make us us, who's Jesus calling us to be, plus you're going to have some free food and some free coffee. So it's not a bad way to spend your Saturday afternoon. Um, so go onto the Facebook page, like us, and if you're interested, come talk to me or come to our event on the 30th of September. Okay. That would help us immensely. So like, 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 that'll that'd be great. Good. Am I allowed to do an old-fashioned thing um, as well? 
to increase your your presence? Perhaps. I, I pray for you. Oh, that'd be great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Father, we thank you for Colin's desire to be part of this community at Papamai East. And uh, we're really grateful that he would see himself as a missionary there and do missionary things to engage with people. Uh, Lord, we uh, know that as a church community, this is a, a slow burn in our presence, uh, the desire and the, the slow movement that we're taking, the, the preparation time, uh, so we can uh, be there in February, March. And so, Lord, we just want to thank you for Colin, and we just pray that you keep uh, creating space for him in that community, allow him to build critical relationships, uh, and uh, allow the presence of our church in that community to be there before they even arrive. So, Father, thank you for Colin, and uh, we just ask your continued blessing upon him and Haley and the children as they pioneer this work. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thanks. Kia ora. Well, we carry on with this Who Me series, and uh, today we're asking the questions that a lot of biblical characters asked. And that is, uh, when God came to them and said, I want to choose you to do something, um, they probably had a very similar response to us. These people that we're going to address this morning, three of them, uh, from the Old Testament are people who were used by God in powerful ways, but they didn't get off to the most auspicious start. You know, and maybe like us, they are people who are part of the community, uh, part of the people of God, and yet when they were invited to step up into something a little bit more active, a little bit more influential, and some degree a little bit more dangerous, their response was really quite simple. It was, not if I can help it. Okay? And uh, we need to put this, these people in their context. These are people we're going to look at who are, who are actually part of and are committed to uh, the family of God. And so really we're talking about largely the group that's here this morning. Uh, people who have set their lives apart, saying, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus. And in doing so, um, we're prepared to follow God and take his lead on the things that we're called to do. Now, one of the things uh, is that when we look at biblical characters from the distance of time and the distance that Scripture has, um, we see and we read their stories and we go, oh yeah, that just sounds like a little bit of a hiccup when they get started, they were a bit resistant. But we need to dive into their lives and understand what it is they would be experiencing and what it is they were thinking when it came to this call that was put upon their lives. And I'm going to start with somebody who's pretty familiar to us, and that's the story of, of Moses. And uh, Moses was raised in a very privileged environment. Uh, in Pharaoh's court, the Pharaoh of Egypt, and uh, through uh, his own challenges of making things uh, difficult for himself and others, he ended up escaping that community, and for over 40 years, <coughs> excuse me, over 40 years, he lived in a, a desert existence. And then God said, well, we're not finished with you yet, I still have a plan for you. And so God appeared to Moses in a burning bush, a bush that started to burn, in itself wasn't a phenomenon, but the bush continued to burn and didn't seem to be consumed by the fire. And so Moses walks over there and he starts to realize that this is a divine encounter, what is biblically called or theologically called a theophany. God appears in the form of a man and a miracle all at the same time. And so in this conversation, uh, God is trying to raise up Moses, a man committed to the Hebrews, a man committed to Israel, and he wants to raise him up so that he can be used in his old age. And so this is how the conversation goes. The Lord said, 
I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, and Perizzites, Hibites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And this is a a very, very common response from a lot of biblical characters. Why me? God, you've got lots of other choices. There's thousands of other people who seem way more qualified than I am. But God never necessarily works with the most obvious people, does he? He uses people whom he chooses, and it's his choice in this that is the sovereignty of God at play. And so when we see these characters being chosen, we realize that it's actually the the sovereignty of God that's being questioned when people start to resist. And let's have a look at how it is that Moses started to test the sovereignty of God. Um, He starts to say things like, little excuses like, what if they they don't listen? What if the clicker doesn't work? There we go. What if they don't listen? And so the, the don't listen part of it was, how am I going to turn up a guy who's been living in the desert for 40 years, how am I going to turn up and have any form of respect given to me by the leader of Egypt? And God said, well, this is easy. You've got in your hand a rod, like a walking stick, called a staff. And he said to him, throw it on the ground. And so he throws it on the ground, and immediately a miracle happens, and it turns into a snake. And Moses recoils and gets really frightened by this, and God says, now lean forward and pick it up. So he grabs it by the tail, and it turns back into a wooden staff again. Okay? So there's God saying, look, this is going to be a phenomenal event. In other words, phenomenon, signs, and wonders are going to follow you here. You're not on your own. So there's one of the answers that Moses was looking for. But then he says, what if they, don't, what if they can't understand me? Uh, he says, I've got a really bad stutter. Okay? And uh, I think I might have told you this before, but that's why his friend Aaron... The word Aaron, the name Aaron, I'm sure of it, is that's why it's spelt with two A's. doesn't need two A's. It's Aaron, my friend. Think about it. Think about it. This is, this, this is a phenomenon. Aaron doesn't need two A's, but Moses introduced it. It got written in Scripture. Uh, uh, Aaron, write that down. So he, he, he's there, stuttering away, and um, God said, look, take your brother Aaron with you. He's great at speaking. When he speaks, it'll be like you speaking. You'll be of one mind, and we've got that problem solved. And, uh, and Moses really scrapes the bottom of the barrel, and he says, oh, what if we go there and there's no one there? I mean, this is really weak, isn't it? You know, what if we turn up and no one's there? It's like, hey, I'm God. I've just heard the cry of these oppressed people, and now you're trying to tell me when you go, they're not going to be there. Uh, look, let's just get on with the task here. Um, and so... So Moses finally convinced, it says here, then Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, let me return to my my own people in Egypt to see if any of them are still alive. Jethro said, go and I wish you well. This is is Moses' summary. 
Uh, let's just go, you know, and see if there's any alive. There's tens of thousands of them, hundreds of thousands of them. But he's sort of hoping, really, that when he turns up, it's like, oh, they're not home. Back I go to tend my sheep, you know? Uh, yeah. So Moses had a classic sort of not-if-I-can-help-it response. And, and this is the nature of Scripture. We find that there are people again and again who are just like us, people who are reluctant starters. Reluctant starters because we feel like Moses, that we lack the confidence, the skill, the experience, and to a large degree, the level of persuasion or influence that we think we need to have to go and approach anybody and have a conversation with them. And so let's have a look at another leader who's in a very different category at a very different time. And this is Jeremiah. Now, the nature of things that were going on in Israel at the time is that Israel was in this really deep, deep disobedience. Deep disobedience. They always seem to be tempted to follow other gods. The other gods are so, so attractive. They say, if you sacrifice to me, I'll bring fertility to your family. And the size of your family determined the strength of your family in the day. And so fertility was the ability to have more and more children. And so you'd go and make sacrifices to these gods who promised fertility. And then there were the gods who promised for good crops to happen. So if you had a big family and your crops were well-producing and uh, you could take your kids and you could harvest your wealth, you would be able to grow and influence and have a huge level of uh, confidence, I suppose, in a worldly sense. So these gods were always attractive. Okay, they were always attractive. No different to us today. You know, the size of your bank account, the size of your car, the size of your house, the size of your holiday, these are all symbols of worldly success. But uh, here is Jeremiah, and this is how he began, remembering he was nothing more than a teenager here, maybe in his early teens. But the nature, was that, nature of Israel was that it was in deep, deep disobedience. God was very disappointed with the prophets and the leaders that were there, so he had to go and target a different generation and get them to wear dog collars so that they could influence the people. Okay, so here he is with Jeremiah. The word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I, let, I set you apart, appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Alas, sovereign Lord, I said, I do not know how to speak. I am too young. I'm too young. And, and, and here we find a challenge completely the opposite to what Moses was. Moses says, I know who I am. I'm an older man now. I'm in my 80s. My time is done. Uh, you know, it's, I'm all spent, essentially. And uh, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Okay? And so here's the other end of the story. Where we've got Jeremiah saying, I'm too young. And I too don't know what to say because I haven't enough, had enough life experience. And, uh, and God says, well, that's just essentially no excuse at all. And says, but the Lord said to me, do not say I am too young. You must go to everyone. I send you to, to sorry, I must go to, you must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and to tear down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build 
and to plant. Okay, so he's got this pull down, build up. Pull down the old, build up the new. Pull down the godless and raise up the godly. This is the call upon Jeremiah's life. And and this is very different to what Moses was called to because Moses was called to go and rescue a people. Okay? It's a little bit like Colin going to rescue uh, people who have long lived in Papamaa. Okay? We want to rescue you from the bondage of all the Aucklanders who have come down, who, who hold you in bondage and force-feed cappuccinos into your system until you are overly caffeinated, okay, and run frantic lives like Aucklanders do. All right? See, they're going to bring their lifestyle with them. And Colin has to go out and rescue them and have them saved uh, into a good Baptist lifestyle. Eh? Hey, what do you reckon, Colin? Hey! I can't get the legs thing going, mate. So, here's, here's Jeremiah. He's got a completely different call. He's intimidated by the fact that he's been called to go to people who are older than him, people who are more knowledgeable than him. But his words are going to be like a knife, like a sword. They're going to cut so sharp. And we won't see it now, but the very first word that Jeremiah goes off to and tells his people, he says, listen, folks, he said, I had a vision from God, and it's like a boiling pot is starting to tip from the north, ready to pour out over our nation. And that boiling pot was the Assyrians. The Assyrians were going to come and take them into captivity. Great image, eh? Like a boiling pot that's about to tip. And so here's this young man called to say these things. And of course he's scared. Wouldn't you be? You think of your own youthful days. You, you know, you're just growing in confidence. And to be asked by God to do this, and when you find that you open your mouth, you have something prophetic coming out that is way beyond your own understanding, way beyond your own years. This is a huge call. And so understandably, uh, Jeremiah is saying, no, not if I can help it. The people of Israel are not willing to listen to you because they are not willing to listen to me. For all the Israelites are hardened and obstinate, but I will make you as unyielding and hardened as they are. I will make your forehead like the hardest stone, harder than flint. Do not be afraid of them or terrified by them, though they are a rebellious people. There's this call to, to Ezekiel. Ezekiel's being told that the people he is going to are people who are not going to listen. How would you like that? Imagine if you're a school teacher and the headmaster said, I'm going to put you in a classroom of kids and it doesn't matter what you do, they won't listen to you. You go, oh, cool. Or if you're Jaden, you'd say, sweet. You see? <clears throat> when you're being told that you're entering into a mission impossible task, it's understandable that you would feel reluctant to go, wouldn't you? And yet what God says to young Ezekiel, he's a young man as well, is he says, I'm going to allow you to match fire with fire. I'm going to take you and I'm going to mold you. And if you think these people are hard and obstinate, I'm going to make you have a head like a stone. Hey, isn't that cool? You're going, oh my goodness. What does this mean that I have to be transformed into? I have to meet fire with fire, strength with strength, anger with anger. Hardness with hardness, but in a godly way. And so this conversation continues on. And he said to me, Son of man, listen carefully and take to heart all the words I speak to you. 
Go now to your people in exile and speak to them. Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, whether they listen or fail to listen. Then the Spirit lifted me up, and I heard behind me a loud rumbling sound as the glory of the Lord rose from the place where it was standing. It was the sound of the wings of the living creatures brushing against each other and the sound of the wheels beside them, a loud rumbling sound. The Spirit then lifted me up and took me away, and I went in bitterness and in the anger of my spirit with the strong hand of the Lord on me. I came to the exiles who lived at Tel Aviv near the Kabar River, and there where they were living, I sat among them for seven days, deeply distressed. Deeply distressed. Does this sound like the joy of the Lord? You know? Deeply distressed. You know, here, here's a young man, and, and if, we, if we go back and, and, and just pick that up again, it says there, I, came, um, I went, in the top line, I went in bitterness and in the anger of my spirit. Now, we have this theology that says, you know, that built around the scriptures like the joy of the Lord is my strength and all those positive things like this, you know. I felt the call of God and I'm excited about what God's going to do in me. And yet when we see people like Moses and we see people like Jeremiah and we read of the attitude here of Ezekiel, we go, hold on, I think some of my my theology might be a little bit wrong. You see, because when we engage with God and we're looking at this call of God upon our lives, we are often convinced that we have to be absolutely content. Contented about this sense of call. That it has to give us perfect joy, tick all the boxes, meet all our needs. But God's saying to these prophets, listen, this is going to be hard, hard work. There's no fun in this, okay? At best, you might get a little respect, but there's more than likely you're going to be intimidated, you're going to be persecuted, you're going to be judged, and this isn't going to be a very fun time for you. And so you can see why... um, Ezekiel goes away and sits under a tree, and it says for seven days he was, uh, had all this anxiety going on, and he was deeply, deeply distressed. He was allowing the Word of God to catch up with him. He was trying to process this. And I, I think there are times when we don't allow God process time. When we go, oh, that sounds too hard, can't be the will of God. Oh, that might cost me something. Oh, that sounds uncomfortable. The story of some mountaineers going up Mount Everest, literal story, this is in one of Edmund Hillary's books, and he talks about how it was that the Sherpas were being encouraged to, to, to move faster, move faster. We had to get to the, this base camp by a certain amount of time, and a certain amount of time on a certain day. And so one day, um, the team looked at the Sherpas, and they were all sitting there, and they were pretty tired, and they said, come on, we've got to get moving. And he goes, oh no, boss, we'll just wait a little while. And he goes, what are you waiting for? He says, we're waiting for our spirits to catch up with our bodies. <laughs> I thought, yeah, yeah, well, it's a little bit like Ezekiel. He was waiting for his feelings to catch up to, or his will to catch up to the will of God. Because the will of God was well and clearly defined here. This is an obstinate people that I'm sending you to. I have to make you something you're not so that you can achieve the tasks that I've called you to, uh, to, to complete. So <clears throat> why do these people resist? Why resist? Well, because prophets 
know the price. They know the price. When you're at a distance looking at some, some person's role or responsibility, it's very easy to um, assume that, that that task's relatively easy. A lot of tasks are a lot harder than they would appear to be. We're only a week away from an election. Seriously, who would want to be a prime minister? Eh? Seriously. You know, and I, I've had the privilege of spending some time with some of these MPs over the years and the prime minister and stuff, meetings in their office, and their schedules are so full. They're, they're just under constant scrutiny. You know, it's a really, really difficult task. Who would want to be a, a prime minister? But, you know, let's go out and exercise our, our vote uh, in the coming week. That will be really important for us. But who would want to be a prophet? Well, the prophets know the price. That's why they're, they're getting out of town. They're trying to get away. They're trying to argue with God. They're trying to wrestle with this call upon their lives because they're saying, this is going to cost me something. In fact, it's going to cost me everything. Because when you're a prophet and this tension comes upon you of who you want to be and who God wants you to be, um, your whole identity is now placed into this role. You can be a carpenter Monday to Friday, and you can be a fanatical rugby supporter in the weekend. Okay? But when you're called to be a prophet 24-7, okay, 24-7, that's who you are. That's your identity. And um, I, it was interesting. I had a really interesting day yesterday. Uh, a sad occasion. Um, a young lady, well, I shouldn't call her young. She was 48. Um, she passed away. That's all relative, isn't it, friends? I'm sorry, I shouldn't say that. It's all relative. Um, but a family that I grew up with in Tapuna, and we were really close friends as family, and uh, she, she passed away suddenly from a brain aneurysm. So uh, I was asked to take the funeral, and a whole lot of folks turned up, about 500 people turned up. And it was a wonderful celebration, wonderful send-off. But all these people who I went to school with were there. You know, and I couldn't believe how old they'd got. I mean, they were so old that they couldn't recognize me, you know? <laughs> Figure that one. <clears throat> um, but a number of them came up to me and said, hey, look, I, you know, I enjoyed what you did today when you led this funeral, and uh, how did you come to be a pastor? So, you know, I'd tell them about, um, I said, oh, look, you know, you, you would probably think this is the last thing I'd ever do is be a minister when you knew me at school and, you know, we used to party on when they were in the, the first 15. And these guys are like, yeah, that's exactly, exactly what I'm thinking. And I said, look, I, you know, I came to know Jesus when I was about 22 and uh, completely changed my life. And, uh, and I explained the call of God on my life and I explained what I've been doing and, and uh, how I'm you know, now paid to be good and um, others are good for nothing. And, and, and so I'm called, right? But the definition of being called is that you're on 24-7. You know, you, you can't actually just flick in and out of this responsibility. And that's the nature of what these guys, Moses and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, were dealing with. You can't be a prophet like Jeremiah and say, the, the, the boiling water is about to be tipped over our nation and then go off to the pub with the boys. You are a prophet. You are called to these roles. I think we're in a stage and age in our of history uh, where we're really confronting some really big barriers in respect to why it is that we ourselves in this century wrestle with the call of God, even as the people of God. Um, and, and this is going to sound very, very simplistic. But beyond any other generation before, 
We measure truth and we measure calling by one word, our feelings. We live in a society now where truth is not truth. It's all about how I feel about that. Okay? Um, when we look at the shifts in society over recent years and uh, how it is that we've changed and how laws have been put in place and, uh, and different, different things like, uh, you know, prostitution's no longer illegal, uh, same-sex marriage. All these things aren't built upon truth as we would understand it, biblical truth. Truth has been displaced for feelings. And uh, feelings are given a whole lot of credibility way beyond anything we've experienced before in previous, pre previous years of history. Um, and, and the problem we have with feelings is that they are real but not necessarily true. He said, this is what Ezekiel was wrestling with. He said, I know how I'm feeling. I'm feeling angry. I'm feeling bitter in my spirit. I'm angry and bitter in my spirit. You know? Now imagine if we had Colin up here. I say, Colin, are you called to Papama? Yeah. When are you going? February. How do you feel about that? Stink. <laughs> Why are you going? Because God told me to go. <laughs> I hate those people. Don't like coffee. Wear my dog collar so people run away from me. <laughs> but imagine if we had that conversation, you'd all be going, What's going on here? And if I say, Colin, why are you, why are you going then? He goes, Because God has called me and my feelings will catch up with the will of God along the way. <laughs> yeah? We don't do that though. I'm serious about this. There are things that we are called to do to make sacrifice. There are things that we are called to do to commit ourselves to some overseas projects or local projects or see that neighbor that you don't really like and God's saying, go and make them a cake and make peace with them. You know, oh, I don't want to do it. No, but do it anyway. You know, and we base so much of what we perceive to be the will of God based around our feelings at any given time. And I know for me that my feelings are real but not necessarily true. You know, and that depends on sometimes this as much as when I last ate food, you know? There's that, that little um, ad on TV, you know, where the guys are, are being stupid as policemen or stupid as firemen, and then they give them a Snickers bar and go, you're not you when you're hungry, you know? These, these things are so true. And, and we have to make commitments. Look, I've got to confess to you. It was my wedding anniversary the other day. And I thought, what would Michaela really, really enjoy doing? This is totally self-sacrificial. <laughs> anyway, back at, <laughs> in her high school days, um, there was a school production, and Michaela played Juliet in the play Romeo and Juliet. She was the lead. Yeah, that's right. I'm her Romeo. <laughs> right? Right? I like that. I'm the one she chose. Anyway, um, I happened to be online one day and I noticed that in Rotorua, the New Zealand ballet was putting on the production Romeo and Juliet. So I got online and I <laughs> clicked the buy button for some tickets and we went off and we watched Romeo and Juliet together and we had a fantastic night, even though it's three hours long. And it took 
10 minutes for Mercutio to die after he was stabbed. He'd die, then he'd get up and he'd dance. A bit like Colin, and he'd die again, he'd get up. And um, I was like, just die already, you know? But it was very artistic. I have to appreciate the athletic ability. And if our All Blacks could jump like those guys do, we'd be even better than we are. But coming back to my point, there are times when we do things because of others. Now, look, I enjoyed my time with Michaela, obviously. Um, and uh, I'm using this to illustrate it, how, 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 how we need to put, our place, put, our, put ourselves in a place where God gets the final say. This is, this, is the, this is what obedience looks like. This is what lordship looks like. Is that he's given the right to exercise his will even when our feelings are still coming up the mountain to join his will. Does that make sense? Yeah. That's what separates us apart from um, people who would say, you know, oh, I'm a Christian and it, as it suits me because it works for me. You know, um, but somebody who's prepared to commit their will to this journey is going to be put in a place where God will do wondrous things for them, just in the way that these prophets were exposed in the fullness of time to the hand of God working in and through their lives. So, I'm finishing here. When we say, who me? Uh, let's be reminded of what uh, Peter said to the church when he said, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Whenever we are committed, we become like a stone, not sand. You know, we're living stones, and we can be used when we make these solid commitments. We're not sand that runs through the will of God, okay, to be, that disappears. We're stones set apart. Let's stand up. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've demonstrated to us what commitment looks like when you went to the cross for us in spite of your, your feelings. We saw the Garden of Gethsemane, and we, we can all identify with that story, how it is that uh, you said, your will be done. Not my will, but your will be done. Father, we, we can only ask that you build into us, in some degree, a, a, a forehead like granite. That we would look around ourselves and we'd say, where are the young Jeremiah's? Are they living in the bedroom next to me? Have I been holding them back? Where are the Moses who have written themselves off because they feel that their time is done? But you're pulling them up and saying, get going, you've got jobs to do. Lord, help us to lay our will and our feelings upon your altar. And so that when we're exercising your will, our joy will come as we see how it is that you are building your kingdom through us, even though there are times when we feel that this is a real struggle. Father, we thank you. We thank you for scripture. We thank you for saints, for prophets who have gone before us and have demonstrated a life well lived. 
And God, we, we just want to be found in that company. We want to be found in that great cloud of witnesses, of people who have said yes to you, even when it's cost us something. May your will be done. We ask this in Jesus' name.